John chapter 8 is our passage. Here's the key concept today. Jesus is the light of life. We're in a series of messages entitled, The Light Has Come, and today we're talking specifically about the identity of the light. Jesus is the light of life. Now, our passage today uh, is, is really uh, an extended treatment of uh, the, the story of what happened and one of Jesus' visits to Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, it's called Sukkot in modern day. It, uh, Jews refer to it as Sukkot. It means huts or hut. And this is the, the, the celebration where the Jews go to Jerusalem and remember God's provision for them in the wilderness wanderings. And the setting for the, the teaching that we have today begins back in chapter 7, verse 1. So let's look there. You follow along as I read. It says this, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposefully staying away from Judea because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. In that setting, which takes place up north in Galilee, Jesus' brothers are teasing him, mocking him, if you will. You can almost hear the snarky tone of voice that they're using as they don't believe that Jesus truly is who he says he is, and that is the one true Messiah. And they're getting ready to go to the feast down in Jerusalem, which would be south of Galilee. And they say, why don't you come with us to the big city? Because it's there in the big city when you're really going to make your fame. If you really are who you say you are, that's where the action is and that's where you ought to be. But there's also a subtle challenge that's in their, in their taunting because John tells us that already the word is out that the, the leaders of the Jews down in Galilee are looking to kill Jesus. His reputation precedes him. He's already growing in fame as he challenges the religious leaders of the day. So kind of the, the brothers are also putting a, a, a further challenge there. If you really believe you are who you say you are, then take a risk. Take a chance. Go down to where it might be dangerous for you, but where you will earn your fame. And so the brothers went down to the Feast of Tabernacles. But Jesus waited. He waited in Galilee, and He came down uh, later in the midst of the feast. Now, we need to understand that the Feast of Tabernacles is one of the three great pilgrim feasts of Israel, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. The people were asked on these, on, in these celebrations to make their way to Jerusalem and to celebrate at the temple. And this particular feast was uh, that feast, as I said, that they commemorated the wilderness wanderings. But more than just commemorating the wilderness wanderings, where they celebrated the care that God, ha God had for them in the midst of those wanderings. And so in this particular feast, uh, like I said, modern day called Sukkot, which means hut, they reenacted the, the uh, wilderness 
people who staying in tents. The people would set up outdoor tents and they would sleep in the tents or huts and they would eat their meals outside, kind of reenacting uh, what the children of Israel experienced in the wilderness. This feast was probably the best attended of all the feasts, of all the pilgrimage feasts, because the, the time of the year, the harvest had already come in. They were free to attend this. The, the labor had been reduced in terms of the harvest being in. And it was a favorite time for the kids. They would love this week-long camping trip that they would have with their families and their friends. But it wasn't all fun and games. There were sacrifices to be made. There were ceremonies to attend to. And all of this is outlined in Numbers chapter 29. Come here with the whole family. Take part in the celebration. And you can imagine that it was a massive effort on the part of the families to come on down with all their, their gear and live in a hut for a, uh, for a week. And interestingly enough, it's a little more than a week. Because the Feast of Tabernacles is a seven-day plus one feast. In Numbers 29, it's described this way. On the eighth day, hold an assembly and do no regular work. Present an offering made by fire as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. This feast was a little longer, took a little extra effort to participate in. But what I want you to see here from uh, John 7 and 8 is that all of this fits perfectly into Jesus' plan. Really, this week that we're going to look at, this turns out to be a monumental week in the life of Jesus, something that really uh, uh, propelled him forward in terms of his confrontation with the Jewish leaders. You see, Jesus had decided to come to the feast, but he came down after his brothers uh, left, and he went undercover, so to speak. And when he comes to Jerusalem in the midst of the feast, this is what he finds. Go to verse 12 of John chapter 7. Among the crowds there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one could say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. Jesus comes in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles, and as he listens to the conversation, he finds that he is the talk of the town. He is being debated about. He's being discussed in a way that's very careful because there's already a general knowledge that the Jews are out to get him by this time in his career. But all of that changes about halfway through the feast. When Jesus throws off this low-key approach and he starts to openly teach in the temple courts. Go to verse 14. Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and began to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? Now, you need to understand that when John says the Jews, that's his shorthand phrase for pointing towards the Jewish leaders. The people were amazed by Jesus' teaching, but John is emphasizing the fact that the leaders, too, were amazed by Jesus' teaching. They're impressed, and, and they're kind of in a quandary. They, they want to get rid of him. They want him out of the way, but they are impressed with his teaching and they see the following that he has in the crowd. So for the last half of the week of the Feast of Tabernacles, it's kind of a standoff. 
But what Jesus does next is so radical, so revolutionary, so confrontational, it will set his course to the cross. We saw it a few weeks ago as we were studying in Isaiah. That Jesus hijacks the symbols of this feast that point to God and his provision, and he causes those symbols to point to himself. Remember with me, as we were in Isaiah chapter 12 a few weeks ago, that we, we mentioned that each of the days of the Feast of Tabernacles, there was a uh, ceremonial procession. And the procession came down from the Temple Mount down to the pool of Siloam where the, a pitcher of water would be dipped into the pool and the water would be carried back up to the Temple Mount and poured out by the priest as they quoted Isaiah 12 verse 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And that verse was just the, 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 the handle, so to speak, of reminding people that God was our provision when we needed it most of all physically, and He is our provision spiritually as well. It brought to mind those, those times in the desert when they were desperate for water and God provided it. Now, on the seventh day, that water ceremony was a little bit more elaborate, a little bit more extended. And in that moment, on the seventh day as it was happening, here's what Jesus does. Go down to verse 37 of chapter 7. John says, On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Jesus hijacks that imagery of that water and says, I can provide you rivers of living water. Now, John, in, in the next few verses, as an aside almost, tells us that what he was really referring to was the gift of the Holy Spirit who would come. But in that moment, in that ceremony, you can imagine the confusion that would have happened because the, the ceremony was interrupted, the give and take between the priests and the people with the normal verses that they recite. It was, it was all out of order. This was a breach of protocol. And everyone would have been wondering, how dare Jesus stand and claim that he can produce living water, streams of living water, not just a pitcher being poured out, streams of living water. And with that challenge, breaking the status quo, breaking the tradition that they're used to, Jesus calls it a day, and he goes back to his hut or his tent. Chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Here's an interesting thing we need to understand. It points out the humanity of Jesus and the fact that he was part of the customs of his day, part of the, the ritual. Uh, you see, Jesus uh, and the other pilgrims from the north would have camped out in this pilgrimage on the Mount of Olives. That was the traditional place where the pilgrims from Galilee would stay. 
It informs us a little bit about why we see Jesus so fond of the Mount of Olives, why we see Him all through His uh, ministry uh, retreating to the Mount of Olives as a place of prayer and a place of safety. Jesus came here year after year as a child, and now as an adult, He's still participating in the ritual. He's on the Mount of Olives where the other Galileans are camping, and He goes to His own hut, His own tent, and there He spends the night. Because remember, this was a seven-day plus one feast. So the eighth day comes. Read on in verse 2 of chapter 8. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, the, the, the leaders of the Jews, they interrupt Jesus' teaching on this eighth day of the feast by bringing this woman caught in adultery. Now, the story of the woman caught in adultery is really not our focus for this morning. It's Jesus' actions at the feast. But after He deals with the unfair treatment of this woman, we come to the second way that Jesus blows up the traditions and the imagery that the crowd would have been used to at the final moments of this feast. So go down to eight, chapter 8, verse 12, and we're finally at our focus verses for today in terms of the coming of the light. When Jesus, after Jesus deals with the woman caught in adultery and, the, and the, the unfair treatment there, He begins to speak to the crowd again. And here's what He says in verse 12. Then Jesus spoke again to the people. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, that's a favorite passage. That's a favorite verse. We return to it over and over again as we teach about the life of Jesus, particularly here at the Christmas season. But we miss the impact of what He's really saying because even though we can read the words on the page, we cannot visualize the setting in which Jesus is saying this. We have to visualize where He would be and what would be happening around Him to really get the sense because part of the tradition of the Feast of Tabernacles is what was called the illumination ceremony. And that was in the evenings of the feast days, giant uh, lampstands were constructed in the court of women, and the lights would be lit in the evening to illustrate the presence of God, just like the presence of God was illustrated by the fiery pillar in the wilderness wanderings. All of the imagery of this feast is connected back to the wilderness wanderings. For the past week, every evening, the people have seen the light of this illumination ceremony. And now it's the final day. This is the eighth day. The, the culmination on the seventh day of the water ceremony has passed. Now it's the eighth day. And maybe they're even preparing to take down those giant candle stands. Uh, it, it, it may be in my mind's eye, I imagine them kind of preparing to, 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 to end the feast. And Jesus points to that uh, symbol, and he hijacks this second symbol of the Feast of Tabernacles, saying, not that, but me. I am the light of the world. Now remember, 
those candle stands, those giant things, candles, and maybe it was shaped like a menorah. I'm not exactly sure uh, how it was shaped. That light was representative of the presence of God. He's already claimed to be able to bring them spiritual refreshment because he can produce living water for them. And now in this statement, he's saying, I represent the presence of God. That menorah symbolized God's nearness. And he's saying, you know what? These candles, they're going to be put out pretty soon. They're going to be snuffed out. The feast is over. They're going to be packed away till next year. But when you walk in my light, you walk in that light forever. You will never walk in darkness again because I am the light of the world. And the Bible consistently uses the image of light to represent God himself because light is superior to darkness. 1 John uh, chapter 1 says this, God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. Light is associated with God because light brings understanding. Light brings clarity. Light brings safety. Light brings truth. You can imagine all kinds of fearful things in the dark, but when the lights turn on, the falsehoods are cast away and you get truth and clarity and comfort we commonly say when we're confused and we don't know uh, how to solve a problem, can somebody shed some light on this? Now, we don't mean somebody bring a flashlight. We mean get understanding and get truth. All of that comes in the imagery of light. And here Jesus claims all of that for himself, inherently claiming that as he is with them as the light, God is with them. But there's more. By saying that he is the light of the world, he's saying the world has no other source of light than him. It's either Jesus or darkness. There are no other choices. He doesn't say, I am a light in the world. He doesn't say, I am one of the lights you need to pay attention to in the world. No, he says, there are no other alternatives. It's either me, light, or somebody else, darkness, either or. But there's still more. By saying that he's the light of the world, he's saying that he is the source of light that is tailored specifically for this world. The light comes via the creator and the owner of the world. Jesus' light is perfectly suited for the world, for what we need. When the light shines properly, it will show us the truth and the beauty of the world that God created the way the Maker wants us to see it. It will also show us the ugliness and the repulsiveness of sin, that which is against the purposes of God Almighty. So it means that all the world and everyone who lives in the world needs this light, and He is the source, and He is the only source. So what is the expected reaction when the perfect light of the world introduces himself. How would you expect people to respond to that? Well, what is wanted is that people will walk in that light. People will follow the light, live inside the illumination of the light, accepting all of this to be true because Jesus is who he says he is. But the reaction of the Pharisees is very different from that. The reaction of the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jews here, is the opposite of what you would think is called for. And I want to point it out because it's a reaction that we see around us all the time on many different levels, but also on the level of faith. 
Their reaction I summarize as sophistry. Now, I wonder if you know what that word means. Uh, it's a, a term that we don't use all the time, but it's a term that's worth knowing. Sophistry. A sophist was initially a class of Greek teachers who were known for their subtle arguments, but their arguments always bordered on trickery. So the word sophism became to be applied to an argument that on the surface seems correct, it's technically accur accurate, but is actually invalid because the argument is created to be a deception. There's a, a hidden agenda there. I say it's a term worth knowing because we encounter it in our world all the time. People who clearly want one thing to happen but make it seem like they're advocating something else, there's a hidden agenda. And that's exactly what we see in the Pharisees in their reaction. Sophistry. Look at verse 13. I'll point it out to you. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. The sense of what they're saying is this. You know, we kind of would like to believe you. We, we kind of, you know, would like to accept what you're saying and so forth. But, but you've got a technical problem. And it's a problem with the law. And the law establishes that you need two witnesses to uh, establish the truth. And, and so we can't believe you. Uh, we're not able to believe you. We can't accept you. It wouldn't be careful. It, it wouldn't be prudent to do that. For all we know, you're a madman. For all we know, you're a villain. And we don't want to be taken in. We have responsibilities to follow our rules. And since we have responsibilities to follow our rules, I'm sorry, we cannot accept what you're saying. Now, at first glance, at some level, it seems reasonable. However, it's a reasonable uh, argument to lead to investigation, but it's not reasonable to reject based only on that. And Jesus responds to that. Verse 14, Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. He's saying, you know, you've not even attempted to understand me. You've not even attempted to investigate what I'm saying. You don't know anything about me, nor do you really comprehend who I am in terms of uh, uh, talking to you today. You're not even trying to understand. And that's why you're hiding behind this technicality. And then he moves on to a second uh, response to them in verse 17. He says, in your own law it is written that the testimony of two men is valid. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. In other words, he says, you know what? Actually, I do indeed have a witness to support what I'm saying. I do indeed have a witness who corroborates the fact that I am the able to give you the, the living water and I am the light come to bless you. And that witness who corroborates my claim to who I am is none other than God the Father. Not only am I indeed complying with your laws, I have the greatest witness of all, God the Father himself. And there's an implied question there. And why is it, Pharisees, that you can't figure that out? 
Verse 19, Then they asked him, Where is your father? Jesus replied, You do not know me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. See, here's what he's saying. Here you are claiming to be the religious leaders of the Jews. There you are wearing the robes of honor, seeking the positions of authority and trust, supposedly based on your knowledge of God and His Word. But you don't know Him at all. The God you talk about is not the God of the Bible. The God you talk about is not the true God that acted in history. The God that you talk about, that you worship, is a God of your own making. And you've made that God for your own benefit and for the detriment of others. The claiming to be in the light, you actually walk in darkness and don't recognize the light when it's right before you because you don't know the one true God. It reminds me of what he said to men similar to this back in John chapter 5. He says, Do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Jesus is saying, you have the Scriptures. But just like you don't seek to understand what I'm saying to you, you don't seek to understand what the Scriptures really teach. You read your Scriptures to confirm your own false ideas. Thus, you don't believe Moses, not the real, real Moses. You believe only in a form of Moses. And in fact, that would apply to all of the prophets of the Old Testament. You believe only in a form of them, a technical approach to them. But you don't understand that all of them were pointing to me all along. Because the God that they worshipped was a God that they invented the God that they pray to is a God that's a figment of their imagination and holding up that figment thinking that's true when the light comes in their midst, it looks like darkness. But the call is clear. Follow the light. Walk in the light. It means turn to Jesus. Place your trust in Him as the source of God's light because He is God Himself. And the stakes couldn't be higher for them or for us. This is how Jesus describes the stakes in verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. You will indeed die in your sins because they're not believing, because they're not willing. That's blunt. Jesus is bluntly truthful about the stakes and that's what light does. Light does not negotiate with darkness. Light casts darkness out. I am the light of the world. When Jesus says that, that is a statement that draws a line right down the middle of reality. And he's saying, which side of this line are you on? Are you on the side of darkness that throws up all kinds of arguments and excuse after excuse? Because bottom line, you don't want to change. Bottom line, you want to believe what you want to believe. You, want your, you don't want your sin to be exposed or your guilt to be known or your pride to be shattered. That's exactly where the Jewish leaders were. You're lining up on the side of darkness. And Jesus will say to them, to us, this is what light does. It exposes. It brings awareness. It casts away the darkness. And when you walk in the light and you change categories, you will find that Truth is there. Rescue is there from the one who loves you. This whole story here 
He's telling about a week in Jesus' life that is filled with challenge and confrontation, meeting hard hearts and rejecting minds, people who are willing to argue for the darkness while they think they're in the truth and in the light. But it reminds me that there was another Pharisee, a scholar and a teacher. He had a much softer heart. He was kind of baffled by what he saw in Jesus, mesmerized by what he saw him do and how he heard him teach. We're going to look at his encounter with Jesus next week. His name was Nicodemus. But when Jesus met with Nicodemus, he used the same exact imagery, but it got a very different result. But this is part of what Jesus said to Nicodemus. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. The light has come. In this Advent, you can move away from the darkness into the light of life. And for you who already follow Jesus as the light of life, as you walk in His light, follow His love and His guidance, you find that hope grows increasingly within you because in the light of the love of Jesus Christ, there is blessing and there is peace. And He has that for us. Let's claim it together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You so much that You sent Your Son. Lord Jesus, we recognize that there are times in Your ministry when You were tremendously confrontational, when You made sure that You changed the, in the, the areas, the, the frame of mind where we were going astray, thinking the wrong things, claiming the wrong things. Lord, help us always to be soft of heart and ready to change our mind based on what we see in Your Word. And help us, Lord, to be the humble, the willing, not sticking to our own personal uh, grievances, or our own personal mindsets, but being willing to say, God, change my mind, transform my heart. Let me understand things the way you do so that I can live for you. Lord, that's our prayer today. Help us accomplish that, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.